You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Critical race theory and social justice are useful analytical tools. White supremacy, centeredness, and fragility are the monsters under all our beds. Inequity is presented as proof of systemic racism. Unending calls to repentance for America's original sins of slavery and racism resound hourly and daily, week after week. All of this and more has been picked up, embraced, and preached from pulpits and books and YouTube channels by prominent, popular, leading evangelical Christians in recent years. Everywhere you look these days, woke pastors, churches, and Christianity are front and center. But should wokeism be regarded by God's people as a primary or secondary issue? Many Christians are still grappling with what to make of it all. Far more have barely even begun, hopeful as they are, that this is a passing fancy and will all blow over soon enough. You'll see. But we know that Christians are called to a unity of mind and purpose in Christ. Ephesians 4, 1-6 tells us plainly, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all, and in all. I bemoan how unity in Christ always means conservatives embracing liberal forays as valid. But can you tell me why calls for unity never seem to work in the opposite direction? Undoubtedly, the kind of unity where liberals let go of their liberalism would be glorious. But forgive me for not holding my breath. Except by some transformative divine intervention in the hearts of stubborn, willful men, I do not see this happening in the near future, and I do not believe God will force this change on them so long as they do not want it. But I do say we ought not ask conservative Christians to do still more of the never-ending soul-searching which our therapeutic age insists upon. I am tired of checking again and again for even the thinnest trace of selfish motives or conceit here. I am weary of the soul-crushing burden of proof being placed on us to explain why we prioritized wokeism too highly. Perhaps it is not conservative Christians who mistakenly regarded wokeism as primary. Carefully consider the curious claims made by the likes of pastors Paul David Tripp, David Platt, and Tim Keller. These men have been bold, but they have been too bold, and we are missing it. Read and listen to Tripp, Platt, and Keller in their own words. Do they consider woke ideology to be a primary issue or a secondary matter about which Christian brothers and sisters can disagree agreeably and still have fellowship? In a sermon from 2020 titled, Praying and Working for Justice, Racialization, David Platt famously said, We cannot truly worship God while we stay silent on injustice in all kinds of areas. And I know as a white person, as a white pastor, I have blind spots, so I am part of the problem. In a blog post from 2018 titled, My Confession Toward a More Balanced Gospel, Paul David Tripp wrote the following, By God's grace, 
I have become deeply persuaded that we cannot celebrate the gospel of God's grace without being a committed ambassador of the gospel of his justice as well. By God's patient grace, I am now convinced that I cannot be a voice for one without being a voice for the other. Sadly, I have preached grace and been silent in the face of injustice. The cross forbids me to close my eyes to any form of injustice, whether personal, corporate, governmental, ecclesiastical, or systemic. In a message from 2012 titled Racism and Corporate Evil, a white guy's perspective, Tim Keller made the following assertions. The whole structure of the gospel is based on corporate responsibility. To me, the reason that I have been able to get beyond my individualism and start to think in terms of corporate responsibility is because of the gospel. If you do not understand that, to some degree, Western people and white people in particular do not realize to what degree they filter out all kinds of things the Bible says. They just do not see them or they resist them because of that individualism. It is not biblical. It is not gospel. By all means, take what these three and others are saying in context. Go back and listen to and read their entire messages. But when you do, really listen to what they are describing. Whatever specific terms they do or do not use in their calls to action, they are affirming and proclaiming new doctrines. And these new doctrines are the product of trying to wed woke ideology to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Platt says we are problematic because we are white, and we cannot worship God if we remain silent regarding alleged racial injustice. Tripp says we cannot celebrate the gospel without committing ourselves to opposing systemic racism. Keller says the reason we embrace traditional ideas of individual guilt and innocence is because of our whiteness. And if we truly understand the gospel, we will accept woke notions of corporate responsibility. But if we resist those notions, we are unbiblical and do not understand or believe in the gospel. A tragic number of pastors and congregants in American churches now regard woke ideology as essential to Christian life and thought, and to our testimony, fellowship, and effective ministry. If they are in error to do so, it is not conservative Christians diligently correcting and reproving this false teaching in our midst who should be regarded as the divisive ones. Take heed to what 1 Corinthians 14, 7-8 says, If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? Placing the burden of proof on conservative Christians to explain why they made wokeism into a primary issue follows a line of reasoning where a distinct call to battle on a bugle is enough to damn the captains of a defending force, but not the generals of the attacking one. The bravest of us strive to be clear and direct, and we endeavor to be helpful thereby. And this is only proper. Tripp, Platt, and Keller have been very bold in their preaching. It would not be seemly to be ambiguous or conciliatory in response to them. And again, we are not the ones who made woke ideology a primary, central, necessary issue. The woke crowd did that. A reminder from Proverbs 18.17 is needful here. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. We are surrounded in this therapeutic age with those who confuse thorough cross-examination for legalism or a lack of charity. But let us once again not forget to keep the primary things primary. And let us prefer unity over quibbling about secondary issues. 
most of the well-meaning Christian brothers and sisters who say such things do so in good faith with the best of intentions. They call for unity amidst the din of rhetorical battle, genuinely believing we need to keep first things first. And not for no reason do they remind us of the Apostle Paul's assurance that quarreling about words not only does no good, but also ruins the hearers. Even so, sincerity and the best of intentions should not be an impediment to being clear, precise, or careful. Besides pursuing unity in Christ amongst ourselves, God's word also calls us to rejoice in the truth, keep watch over our doctrine, and guard our hearts. And all scripture is profitable for teaching, correction, reproof, and instruction unto righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. But this is another way of admitting that we are not complete and equipped without correction and reproof. Teaching, correction, reproof, and instruction. If these are the ways we workmen are required to handle the truth of God's word, then it is right and proper to redirect stern, sober calls for unity and keeping primary things primary to the self-professed Christians who now align themselves with wokeism and insist we must all join them in that to prove we are real Christians. Welcome back to the Geared Ashley Mullet Show. This is Geared Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado. It is Saturday morning, August 21st, 2021. This is episode 132 of season three, episode 197 of the Geared Ashley Mullet Show. Episode 200 is right around the corner, and we'll have to do something special for that one, so stay tuned. But I just read for you with some editing modification this morning, the essay that I submitted to Ingladii Veritas last night. I had an excellent Zoom conference with Bobby McPherson and Joseph Crampton. I have really come to enjoy the time that we have Friday evening talking about what we're reading, what we're writing, ideas, philosophy, theology, politics, the whole kit and caboodle, what's going on in life. It's very, very productive, very good time. But I submitted this actually to their review for one, to my cousin Micah's review for another, and I just posted this for the episode description on our last episode, whether social justice is a primary or secondary issue. You can go back and listen to yesterday's episode, episode 196 or 131 of this season, if you will. But in this episode, I want to talk more about being very real on these things. And I think of several hours of conversation I've had this past week with a dear friend of mine who is still confused about these things. And when I say he's confused, I don't know that he's confused about what's true and what isn't true. I think what he's confused about is what to do with the people who are in error. What is the magnitude of the error here if they are indeed in error? Is this unimportant enough to where we can overlook the error. And I'm sure that my friend knows people, this being Colorado, after all, I'm sure my friend knows people who 
are in this error, who he loves, who he appreciates, who he has regarded for years as a brother, as a sister in Christ. I'm not talking about far away authors and pastors preaching sermons and you listening to what they have to say through your computer screen, through your smartphone, through your TV. I'm talking about flesh and blood people he knows IRL in real life. And what are the implications if this is a primary issue because the woke crowd has made wokeism and social justice and critical theory and critical race theory into a primary issue, into a dividing line? What if it is a primary issue? Now what? Now what do we do with those folks? My heart goes out to him because that is difficult. I don't say that tritely or disingenuously. I mean that. That is difficult. And we all have friends and family who are on this side of the equation. They are in the woke camp. They went to college. They went to university. They joined a college ministry. That's how two of my cousins have gone, or I should say a cousin of mine and her husband. They joined a college ministry in a very liberal, progressive city on the West Coast. And now they've been converted to woke ideology. They went there to be missionaries of a sort, and they ended up being converted themselves. And the difficult thing, if we don't admit that this is a primary issue because the woke crowd is making it a primary issue, they're making it central, they're making a truth claim, a very, very strong, bold truth claim that this is evidence of your sanctification, your justification, your salvation, whether you embrace wokeism. If we don't admit that it is that important, that critical, then are we prepared to embrace this? And if we don't embrace it, are we prepared to step down from leadership? And what I mean by that is the woke crowd will not permit to have leaders, those who don't embrace, don't embrace the woke ideology. It's either central or you're bluffing. This is either as important as all that to the woke crowd or you're being dramatic. And maybe you are. Maybe this is just virtue signaling, play acting, LARPing, live action role playing. Maybe you don't really mean it, that this is so important to our proving that we are in fact Christians. But if you really believe that, if it is as central as you say, woke Christians, then you're not going to tolerate non-woke Christians in your congregations, in your fellowship, being in leadership. You can't. You can't. That's not the conservative crowd to blame. That's the woke crowd for having defined this debate in those terms, having made these truth claims. Riddle me this, Batman. Let's take wokeism, critical theory, critical race theory out of the equation. Let's talk about circumcision. For us, almost two millennia removed from the New Testament epistles, Galatians as a book can seem very foreign indeed. Now, without getting too 
graphic. I'll just say, nowadays circumcision is a medical procedure, and it's not first and foremost a religious procedure for Christians. There are there are exceptions, but they are exceptions. By and large, circumcision for baby boys is a matter of hygiene, supposedly, so-called. Now, I think that's a load of crap, personally. If you want my very carefully crafted uh, response, I think that's a load of crap. I think we ought to be very, very careful amputating, trimming, cutting off body parts on newborn babies, boys or girls, in the name of hygiene. I'm against it. I'm very much against it. Now, if it was still a requirement, it was a command from God that still applied to us, then absolutely, as a sign of a covenant with God. Is it valid? If our maker, if our creator says, this is a sign of your obedience to this covenant, your submission to the terms of this covenant with the Most High God, that you are his people, if that is the situation still, then by all means, bring on the circumcision. Otherwise, be quiet, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, make your argument, but then I'm going to destroy it. So it was different two millennia ago when the Apostle Paul goes to Antioch. And you have this group called the Judaizers coming in to a community of Gentile Christians and telling them it is not enough to believe in Christ. Whosoever believes in me shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's not enough, according to the Judaizers. The Judaizers tell these Gentile believers they must obey the law also in order to be righteous. They must be circumcised, all of their men, in order to be good Christians. What's the big deal, right? What is the big deal, particularly when you happen to know that later on, the Apostle Paul has Timothy circumcised before they go evangelizing some Jewish communities? Now, bear in mind, Timothy is not being circumcised in the midst of a debate about whether you can be not circumcised and still be a Christian. And, oh, by the way, Timothy's mother and grandmother were both Jews. But Timothy is being circumcised for an entirely different reason than what the Judaizers are insisting these Gentile converts be circumcised for. Paul writes elsewhere that we should be all things to all people so that by all means we might win as many as possible to Christ. When in Rome, do as the Romans do is not a call to licentiousness, immorality, wickedness, foolishness. When in Rome, you don't honor the emperor with sacrifices and prayers as if he's a god. That got the early church persecuted. When in Rome, you don't offer sacrifices to the pagan gods. You don't engage in sexual immorality just because the Romans do. You don't utter blasphemy just because the Romans do. You don't murder 
people who get in your way as you're trying to rise to power just because the Romans might do that. But where possible, where there is Christian liberty, where there is liberty in Christ, can you adapt yourself to the culture so as to be able to communicate to that culture Christ crucified, the only begotten Son of the Father, perfect, blameless, sinless, in obedience to the Father's will, living a perfect life, dying for our sins, to offer the atoning sacrifice, paying the penalty, making us right with God. And yet, just the opposite was happening with the Judaizers. Instead of adapting themselves to the Gentile culture in Antioch, where there was Christian liberty, they came in with selfish motives, with arrogance, with conceitedness, and they tried to insist that these Gentile believers get circumcised in order to be accepted and embraced as Christian brothers. In other words, if you want to be accepted as a Christian, you must first become a Jew. <laughs> then you can be a Christian, but you can't be saved. You can't be God's people unless you're a Jew like we are. And that was not Paul's gospel. Christ saved Paul, who was formerly called Saul, for this specific purpose, to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, to carry this gospel, this good news of Christ crucified to all the nations. And yet the Judaizers made circumcision into a primary issue. In that context is the Apostle Paul, the divisive one, when he confronts the Judaizers, when he confronts even the Apostle Peter to his face publicly and rebukes him for having undermined the gospel message by not eating with the Gentile believers anymore while the Judaizers in, are, are in town. Is Paul being the divisive one there? No, absolutely not. Is he the one making this a primary issue? No, absolutely not. In fact, when circumcision is not a primary issue, when it's a peripheral issue, Paul has no qualms about having Timothy circumcised. It's the fact that the Judaizers are making circumcision into a primary issue that then requires, demands a stern response. Now, it's one thing to say, okay, when we're talking amongst ourselves and we all recognize that this is not a primary issue, I'm not talking about the woke crowd making it a primary issue, whether that's a primary issue. It should be a primary issue to us that the woke church, so-called, is making wokeism into a primary issue. That is a primary issue for us, that they're making it a primary issue. But if you and I are talking about the substance of the arguments, if you and I are discussing whether there is anything true and valid in critical theory, critical race theory, social justice, if you and I are discussing whether there is anything in these Marxist ideas which has biblical support, which is true, which is valid, which is necessary, I have no problem whatsoever saying, 
Well, let's think about that. Let's talk about that back and forth. Just like Paul had no problem having Timothy circumcised outside of the context of the Judaizers. If you think that I and others who weigh in on these things get strongly worded sometimes, check out Galatians 5.12. Check out how blunt Paul is with regards to the Judaizers. I would that those who bother you about circumcision would go the whole way and cut themselves off. In other words, if circumcision makes you righteous, makes you holy, why stop with a little, right? Circumcision, you're trimming a little bit. Man, if you want to be really, really holy, just castrate yourself, right? Do it. You're going to be super holy then. This is mockery. He's ridiculing them because what they're claiming is ridiculous. I read once that the quickest way to get someone to change their behavior is to laugh at them. And you have to be careful because you don't always know what it is that you're tinkering with when you laugh at somebody. And you might not change their behavior in the way that you think they ought to change their behavior. Laughing at somebody might change their behavior. Depending on who it is, they get up and they sock you in the nose or they walk away from you. They were having a discussion. Now they're going to change their behavior by walking away, not engaging you anymore. But I think Paul was okay with that in Galatians. When he's telling the believers in Galatia about this interaction, these dust-ups in Antioch between him and Peter, between him and the Judaizers, he's okay with disingenuous false brothers being ridiculed, and if they don't repent, walking away. That's it. Because that would be better than those false brothers sticking around and leading other vulnerable people astray, weak-minded people astray, naive people astray. You know, it strikes me as so very, very odd sometimes. The issues that have divided churches. The issue is not the issue. The issue is the revolution. This woke business is a means to an end. I'm convinced it's a means to an end for Satan to corrupt and sideline the church. Now, that doesn't mean we're taking his bait if we really dig in and we talk about these things, we discuss these things. I was recommended a book several years ago by Pastor Butch Hart, at Yellowstone Community Church in Savage, Montana. The Bait of Satan. And this book was all about how Satan wants to trap us in unnecessary conflict, but we don't have to take the bait. And let me go on and on and on and on about how we can avoid conflict. With respect, Mr. Hart, that can't be true. That can't be good. Otherwise, we have no ability to make sense of what Paul writes to Timothy. We have no ability to make sense of Paul confronting Peter. We have no ability to make sense of Jesus confronting the false teachers in his day. The sternest, most fiery, most pointed rebukes from Christ Jesus our Lord, the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, were directed at 
religious leaders who knew better or should have blind guides, hypocrites, whitewashed tombs, broods of vipers, sons of the devil. If the woke crowd is perverting the gospel of Jesus Christ, fundamentally at its core, telling non-woke Christians, you can't really understand the gospel. You can't really believe these things. You can't really have fellowship with one another. You can't really understand God's word. You can't really have the Holy Spirit. You can't really be born again. You can't really worship God. You can't really preach and teach. You can't really make disciples. You can't really do ministry. You can't really do anything until you repent of your whiteness. You repent of being a product of Western civilization. You repent of being American. You can't really be a Christian until you embrace woke ideology. That's a false gospel. And the onus is not on conservatives resisting that to prove that they're keeping first things first. The onus is on the woke crowd to explain how dare they make woke ideology, progressive politics, liberation theology, Marxism central. They're making these things central. If anything, those claims on their part require us to say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. Jesus says that in the last day, many will say to him, Lord, Lord, and he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. And the well-meaning, heartbroken brothers, sisters, who don't want this, and they certainly don't want to contribute to it, if it at all can be averted. They rush in and they say, yeah, but it's not for us to necessarily know. We don't know who Jesus is going to say, depart from me, I never knew you to. We don't know who he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant to, enter now into your place of rest. Is that true? Is that totally true? Is that all there is to the story? Is there a little bit more to it? By your fruits, you will know them. Judge not by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me that Paul at Antioch is not relevant here. And if relevant, how? Tell me the letter to the Galatians is not relevant here. I'll listen. I'll, I will hear you out. I will consider it if I'm mistaken here. There's a distinction that needs to be made, obviously, between on the one hand saying somebody who comes to Christ may have to work through some of these ideas and we're all works in progress. We're all in the process of being completed as we read in Second Timothy, Paul's letter to Timothy, he says all scripture is God breathed or breathed out by God. That was two episodes ago. You can go back and listen to my sermon and exposition. But all scripture is profitable, teaching, correction, reproof, instruction, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That means we're not yet. And that's a process. And that's a process we have to, by God's grace, submit ourselves to, with God's help, in community. And so, by no means am I saying, if someone 
still has a lot of work to do in that regard in being completed through teaching, correction, reproof, and instruction. We throw them out. We are the ones who then say, depart from me, I never knew you. That's not what I'm saying. But if we invite them in and we say, hey, you are part of this community and we have a responsibility to you, how then can we admit that they need teaching, correction, reproof, and instruction, and yet we're loath to go there? I happen to believe it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. I happen to believe that the existential crisis right now is going to heat things up dramatically in America. And this existential crisis has to do with how America is seen by the world and how Americans see themselves. Afghanistan falling to the Taliban, the Taliban having billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars worth of military hardware that you and I as American taxpayers paid for. We armed and equipped the Taliban as Biden said. Biden said that the Afghan government forces were 300,000 strong and they were among the best equipped militaries in the world now because of us, thanks to us. We armed them. We equipped them. They're going to hold the country. It's highly unlikely that the Taliban is going to overtake the whole country. And in a matter of days, not years, the Taliban has completely overrun the country for all the world to see, going door to door, checking people's phones for Bible apps to see whether they are secretly Christians. And then what do you think they're going to do to them? What do you think they have done to them already and are continuing to do to them? Going door to door, looking for journalists, looking for Americans, looking for our NATO allies in country, looking for Afghanis who were foolish enough to trust America and the West. One of my favorite quotes is from C.S. Lewis in The Abolition of Man. He writes, in a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. I am so ashamed of this administration. I am so ashamed of the President of the United States of America. I'm so ashamed that if they didn't win this election in 2020 by fraud, my countrymen voted for this guy. And now so, so many men, women, and children who were trusting us, trusting our reputation, are being brutalized with weapons that we purchased. We made them, purchased them, shipped them over there. We did this. If it's proper to be proud of your country for saving the day when Nazism was threatening to overtake the world, when the Imperial Japanese were committing mass atrocities. If it's proper to be proud of your country in those circumstances, and I have been, then it is needful to be ashamed of your country when things are handled and mishandled and botched the way that 
Afghanistan has just been. But that's going to throw America into an existential crisis. It would not be overstating things to say, I think a lot of social upheaval and civil unrest is going to follow shortly, particularly if Biden has just pulled out of Afghanistan and then tries to really tighten down on Americans at home. You surrender hundreds of thousands of small arms, thousands of highly armored, heavily armored military vehicles, bases, communications equipment, tech, high tech to people who hijacked airplanes and flew them into our skyscrapers. If civil unrest is right around the corner, where does the church stand in all of that? Seems to me as though it would be best for us to get our arms around our theology, our doctrine on the front end, to be clear and to be about the work of trying to complete in the way that all scripture is given to complete. Think about that. We're part of that process. Earlier in Second Timothy, before he says the bit about all scripture being God-breathed and suitable and profitable, beneficial, advantageous, if you will, before he says that, he says to Timothy, to entrust to faithful men teaching so that those men in turn teach others. And as he continues on in the chapter, he's telling us how to communicate. He's telling Timothy how to prepare these men to teach others. And he says that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, correction, reproof, and instruction unto righteousness that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. We've got work to do. And we need to be about that. And we need to be clear-headed. And we need to be clear amongst ourselves. Yes, lovingly. Yes, graciously. But clearly. And being clear is a way in which we love. If we are unclear, if we do need to make a battle call, then is it clear? And if it's not clear, is that really so loving and kind and gracious? some things to think on. God be with you. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.